Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Volume 8 of Rip Foster Rides the Gray Planet. Chapter 15, The Rocketeers Rip ran for the snapper boat, feet moving as rapidly as lack of gravity would permit. He called instructions. Santos, turn the launcher over to Peterson and come with me. Koa, take over. Start throwing rockets at that boat, and don't stop until you run out of ammunition. He reached the snapper boat and squeezed in, Santos close behind. As he strapped himself into the seat, he called, Koa, get this and get it straight. At 2305, fire that bomb. Fire it whether I'm back or not. You got that? Koa replied, Got it, sir. That would give the planeteers a minute's leeway. Not much of a safety margin, especially when he wasn't sure how much power the improvised atomic charge would produce. He plugged into the snapper boat's communicator and called, Ready, Santos? Ready, Lieutenant. He braced himself against acceleration and flipped the speed control to full power. The fighting rocket rammed out from the asteroid, snapping him back against the seat. He made a quick check. Gun sight on, fuel tanks almost full, propulsion tubes racked, handy to his hand, space patches ready to be grabbed and slapped on in case an enemy shot hold the helmet or suit. They drove toward the enemy cruiser at top speed, swerving in a great arc as the sun pulled at them. The enemy's big boat was out of the ship, its jets firing as it started for the asteroid. Rip leaned over his illuminated gun sight. The boat showed up clearly, the rings of the sight framing it. He estimated distance and the pull of the sun, then squeezed the trigger on the speed control handle. The cannon in the nose spat flame. He watched tensely and saw the charge explode on the hull of the Connie cruiser. He had underestimated the sun's drag. He compensated and tried again. He missed. Now that he was closer and the charge had less distance to travel, he had overestimated the sun's effect. He gritted his teeth. The next shot would be at close range. The fighting rocket closed space, and the landing boat loomed large in the sight. He fired again, and the shot blew metal loose from the top of the boat's hull. A hit, but not good enough. He leaned over the sight to fire again, but before he had sighted, an explosion blew the landing boat completely around. Koa and Peterson had scored a hit from the asteroid. The big boat fired its side jets and spun around on course again. Flame bloomed from its sides as Connie gunners tried to get their range on the snapper boat. Rip was within reach now. He fired at point-blank range and flashed over the boat as its front end exploded. Santos, firing from the rear, hit it again as the snapper boat passed. Rip threw the rocket into a turn that rammed him against the top of his harness. He steadied on a line with the crippled Connie craft. It was hard hit. The bow jets flickered fitfully, and the stern tubes were dead. He sighted and fired. A charge hit the boat aft and blew its stern tubes off completely. At the same moment, a Connie gunner got a perfect beat on the snapper boat. Space blew up in Rip's face. The snapper boat slewed wildly as the Connie shot took effect. Rip worked his controls frantically, trying to straighten the rocket out by instinct more than anything else. His eyes recovered from the blinding flash, and he gulped as he saw the raw, twisted metal where his boat's nose had been. He managed to correct the boat's twisting by using the stern tubes, but he was no longer in full control. For a moment, panic gripped him. Without full control, he couldn't get back to the asteroid. 
Then he forced himself to steady down. He sized up the situation. They were still underway, the stern tubes pushing, but their trajectory would take them right under the crippled Connie boat. The sun was blazing into the fighting rocket with such intensity that he was having trouble seeing. There was nothing he could do but pass close to the Connie. The enemy gunners would fire, but he had to take his chances. He looked down at the asteroid and saw an orange trail as Koa launched another rocket. The shot from the asteroid ticked the bottom of the Connie boat and exploded. The Connie rolled over violently, tubes flaring as the pilot fought to correct the roll. He slowed the spinning as Rip and Santos passed, just long enough for a Connie gunner to get in a final shot. The shell struck directly under Rip. He felt himself pushed violently upward, and at the same moment he reacted, by hunch and not reason. He rammed the controls full ahead, and the dying rocket cut space, curving slowly as flaming fuel spurted from the ruptured tanks. Rip yelled, Santos, are you all right? I think so. Lieutenant, we're on fire. I know. Get ready to abandon ship. When the main mass of fuel caught, the rocket would become an inferno. Rip smashed at the escape hatch over his head, grabbed the propulsion tubes from the rack and called, Now! He pulled the release on his harness, stood up on the seat, and thrust with all his leg power. He catapulted out of the burning snapper boat and into space. Santos followed a second later, and the crippled rocket twisted wildly under the two planeteers. Don't use the propulsion tubes, Rip called. Slow down with your air bottles. He thrust the tubes into his belt, found his air bottles, and pointed two of them in the direction they had been traveling. He wanted to come to a stop to let the wild snapper boat get away from them. The compressed air bottles did the trick. He and Santos slowed down as the little jets overcame the inertia that was taking them along with the burning boat. The boat was spiraling now and burning freely. It moved away from them, its stern jets firing weakly as fuel burned in the tank. Rip took a look toward the enemy cruiser. The assault boat was no longer showing an exhaust. Instead, it was being dragged rapidly away from the Connie cruiser by the pull of the sun. At least they had hit it in time to prevent launching of the atomic-guided missiles. Or, he thought, perhaps the enemy had never intended using them. The principal effect, besides killing the planeteers, would have been to drive the asteroid into the sun at an even faster rate. The enemy assault boat was no longer a menace. Its occupants would be lucky if they succeeded in saving their own lives. Rip wondered what the Connie cruiser commander would do now. Only one thing remained, and that was to set the cruiser down on the asteroid. If the Connie tried that, he would arrive at just about the time set for releasing the nuclear charge. And that would be the end of the cruiser. And probably of the planeteers as well, Santos asked coolly. Lieutenant, wouldn't you say we're in sort of a bad spot? Rip had been so busy sizing up the situation, he hadn't even thought about his own predicament. Now he looked down and suddenly realized he was floating freely in space, a considerable distance above the asteroid, and with only small propulsion tubes for power. He gasped. Great space! You're right, we're in a mess, Santos! The Filipino corporal asked, still in a calm voice. How long before we're dragged into the sun, sir? Rip stared at him. Santos had used the same tone he might have used in asking for a piece of Venusian shrew. An officer couldn't be less calm, so Rip replied in a voice he hoped was casual. I wouldn't worry, Santos. We won't know it. The heat'll get through our suits long before then. 
In fact, the heat should be overloading their ventilating systems right now. In a few minutes, the cooling elements would break down, and that would be the end. He listened for the accelerated whine as the ventilating system struggled against the increased heat load and heard nothing. Funny. Had it already overloaded and give it out? No, that wasn't possible. He would be feeling the heat on his body if that was the case. He looked for an explanation and realized for the first time that they weren't in sunlight at all. They were in darkness. His searching glance told him they were in the cone of shadow stretching out from behind the asteroid. The thorium rock was between them and the sun. His lips moved soundlessly. Major Joe Barris had been right. In a jam? Trust your hunch. He had acted instinctively, not even thinking what he was doing as he used the last full power of the stern tubes to throw them into the shadow cone, and he knew in the same moment that it would save their lives. The sun's pull would only accelerate their fall toward the asteroid. He said exultantly, We're staying out of high vac, Santos. Light off a propulsion tube. Let's get back to the asteroid. He pulled a tube from his belt, held it above his head, and thumbed the striker mechanism. The tube flared, pushing downward on his hand. He held steady and plummeted feet first toward the rock. Santos was only a few seconds behind him. Rip saw the corporal's tube flare and knew that everything was all right, at least for the moment, even though the asteroid was still a long way down. He looked upward at the Connie cruiser and saw that it was moving. Its exhaust increased in length and deepened slightly in color as Rip watched. His forehead creased into a frown. What was the Connie up to? Then he saw side jets flare out from the projecting control tubes and knew the ship was maneuvering. Rip realized suddenly that the cruiser was going to pick up the crippled assault boat. He hadn't expected such a humane move after his first meeting with the Connie cruiser when the commander had been willing to sacrifice his own men. This time, however, there was a difference, he saw. The commander would lose nothing by picking up the assault boat, and he would save a few men. Rip supposed that manpower meant something, even to consops. His propulsion tube reached Brenchlus, and for a few moments he watched, checking his speed and direction. Then, before he lit off another tube, he checked his chronometer. The illuminated dial registered 2301. They had just four minutes to get back to the asteroid. He spoke swiftly. Don't waste any time in lighting off, Santos. That nuclear charge is going to go off in four minutes. The Filipino corporal merely said, Yes, sir. Rip pulled a tube from his belt and held it overhead and triggered it. His flight through space speeded up, but he wasn't at all sure they would make it. He turned up his helmet communicator to full power and called, Koa, can you hear me? The sergeant major's reply was faint in his helmet. I hear you weakly. Do you hear me? Same way, Rip replied. Get this, Koa. Don't fail to explode that charge at 2305. Can you see us? The reply was slightly stronger. I will explode the charge as ordered, Lieutenant. We can see a pair of rocket exhausts, but no boats. Is that you? Yes, we're coming in on propulsion tubes. Koa waited for a long moment and then, Sir, what if you're not with us by 2305? You know the answer, Rip retorted crisply. Of course, Koa knew. The nuclear blast would send Rip and Santos spinning into outer space, perhaps crippled, burned, or completely irradiated, but the lives of two men couldn't delay the blast that would save the lives of eight others, not counting the prisoners.
Rip estimated his speed and course and the distance to the asteroid. He was increasingly sure that they wouldn't make it, and the knowledge was like the cold of space in his stomach. It would be close, but not close enough. A minute would make all the difference. For a few heartbeats, he almost called Koa and told him to wait that extra minute to explode the nuclear charge at 2306 at the very last second. But even planetier chronometers could be off by a few seconds, and he couldn't risk it. His men had to be given some leeway. The decision made, he put his mind to the problem. There had to be some way out. There had to be. He surveyed the asteroid. The nuclear charge was on his left side, pretty close to the sun line. At least he and Santos could angle to the right to get as far away from the blast as possible. The edge of the asteroid's shadow was barely visible. That it was visible at all was due to the minute particles of mattering gas that surrounded the sun, even millions of miles out into space. He reduced helmet power and told Santos, Angle to the right. Get as close to the edge of the shadows as you can without being cooked. As an afterthought, he asked, How many tubes do you have left? One, sir. I had three. Rip also had one left. That was correct because snapper boats carried three in each man's position. Save the one you have left, he ordered. He didn't know yet what use they would be, but it was always a good idea to have some kind of reserve. The Connie cruiser was sliding up to the crippled assault boat. Rip took a quick look, then shifted his hands and angled toward the edge of shadow. When he was within a few feet, he reversed the direction of the tube to keep from shooting out into sunlight. A second or two later, the tube burned out. Santos was several yards away and slightly above him. Rip saw the planeteer was all right and turned his attention to the cruiser once more. It was close enough to the assault boat to haul it in with grappling hooks. The hooks emerged and engaged the torn metal of the boat, then drew it into the waiting port. The massive air door slid closed. The question was, would the Connie try to set his ship down on the asteroid? Rip grinned without mirth. Now would be a fine time. His chronometer showed a minute and a half to blast time. He took another look at his own situation. He and Santos were getting close now to the asteroid, but there was still over a half-mile Earth distance to go. They would cover perhaps three-fourths of that distance before Koa fired the charge. Now he had a daring idea. How long could he and Santos last in direct sunlight? The effect of the sun in the open was powerful enough to make lead run like water. Their suits could absorb some heat, and the ventilating system could take care of quite a lot. They might last as long as three minutes with luck. They had to take a risk with the full knowledge that the odds were against them. But if they didn't take the risk, the blast would push them outward from the asteroid into full sunlight, and the end result would be the same. We're not going to make it, Santos, he began. I knew that, sir, Santos replied. Rip thought, anyone with that much coolness and sheer nerve rated some kind of special treatment. And the Filipino corporal had shown his ability time and time again. He said, I should have known you knew, Sergeant Santos. We still have a slight chance. When I give the word, use an air bottle to push you into the sunlight. When I give the word again, light off your remaining tube. Yes, sir, Santos replied. And thank you for the promotion. I hope I live to collect the extra rating. Same here, Rip agreed fervently. His eyes were on his chronometer, and with his free hand, he took another air bottle. 
When the chronometer registered exactly one minute before blast time, he called, Now! He triggered the bottle and moved from shadow into glaring sunlight. The slight motion of the bottle turned him so his back was to the sun. Then he used the remaining compressed air to push him downward along the edge of shadow. The sun's gravity tugged at him. He pulled the last tube from his belt and held it ready while he watched his chronometer creep around. With five seconds to go, he called the Santos and fired it. Acceleration pushed at him. And at the same moment, the nuclear charge exploded. Chapter 16 Ride the Gray Planet A mighty hand reached out and shoved Rip, sweeping him through space like a dust moat. He clutched his propulsion tube with both hands and fought to hold it steady. He swiveled his head, quickly searching for Santos, and saw the Filipino a dozen rods away, still holding fast to his tube. From the far horizon, the incandescent fire of the nuclear blast stretched into space, turning from silver to orange to red as it cooled. Rip knew they had escaped the heat and blast of the explosion, but there was a question of how much of the prompt radiation they had absorbed. During the first few seconds, a nuclear blast vomited gamma radiation and neutrons in all directions. He and Santos certainly had gotten plenty, but how much? Putting their dosimeters into a measuring meter aboard a cruiser would tell them. His low-level colorimeter had long since reached maximum red, and his high-level dosimeter could be read only on a measuring device. Meanwhile, he had other worries. Radiation had no immediate effect. At worst, it would be a few hours before he felt any symptoms. As he sized up his position and that of the asteroid, he let out a yell of triumph. His gamble would succeed. He had estimated that going into the direct gravity pull of the sun at the proper moment and lighting off their last tubes would put them into a landing position. The asteroid was swerving rapidly, moving into a new orbit that would intersect the course he and Santos were on. He had planned on the asteroid's change of orbit. In a minute, at most, they would be back on the rock. His propulsion tube flared out and he released it. It would travel along with him, but his hands would be free. He watched closely as the asteroid drew nearer and estimated they would land with plenty of room to spare. Then he saw something else. The blast had started the asteroid turning. He reacted instantly. Turning up his communicator, he yelled, Koa! The rock is spinning! Cut the prisoners loose, grab the equipment, and run for it! You'll have to keep running to stay in the shadow. If sunlight hits those fuel tanks or the tubes of rocket fuel, they're going to explode. Koa replied tersely, Got it. We're moving. The planeteers and their prisoners would have to move fast running to stay out of the direct sunlight. A moment or two in the sun wouldn't hurt the men, but the chemical fuels in the cutting tanks and the rocket tubes would explode in a matter of seconds. At least the Connie cruiser couldn't harm them now, Rip thought grimly. He looked for the cruiser and failed to find it for several seconds. It had moved. He finally saw its exhaust some distance away. He forgot his own predicament in a grin. The Connie cruiser had moved, but not because its commander had wanted to. It had been right in the path of the nuclear blast, although some distance from it. The Connie had been literally shoved away. Then Rip forgot the cruiser. His suit ventilator was whining under the terrific heat, and his whole body was bathed in perspiration. The sun was getting them. 
It was only a short time until the ventilator overloaded and burned out. They had to reach the asteroid before then. The trouble was there was nothing further he could do about it. He had only air bottles left, and their blast was so weak that the effect wouldn't speed him up much. Nevertheless, he called to Santos and directed him to use the bottles. Then he did the same. Santos spoke up. Sir, we're going to make it! In the same instant, Rip saw that they would land on the dark side. The asteroid was turning over and over, and for a second he had the impression he was looking at a turning globe of the Earth, the kind used in elementary school back home. But this gray planet was scarcely bigger than the giant globe at the entrance of the Space Council building on Terra. The gray metal world suddenly leaped into sharp focus and seemed to rush toward him. It was an optical illusion. The ability of the eyes to perceive depth sharply, the faculty known as depth perception, didn't appear to operate normally until the eyes were within a certain distance of an object. He knew he was going to hit hard. The way to keep from being hurt was to turn the vertical energy of his arrival into motion of another direction. As he swept down to the metal surface, he started running, his legs pumping wildly in space. He hit with a bone-jarring thud, lost his footing, fell sideways, both hands cradling his helmet. He got to his feet instantly and looked for Santos. A good thing his equipment was shock-mounted, he thought. Otherwise, the communicator would be knocked out for a line of galaxies. You all right, sir? Santos called anxiously. Yeah, are you? I'm fine. I think the others are over there. He pointed. We'll find them, Rip said. His hip hurt like fury from smashing against the unyielding metal, and the worst part was he couldn't rub it. The blow had been strong enough to hurt through the heavy fabric and air pressure, but his hand wasn't strong enough to compress the suit. Just the same, he tried. And while he was trying, he found himself in direct sunlight. He'd forgotten to run. Standing still on the asteroid meant turning with it from darkness into sunlight and back again. He yelled at Santos and legged it out of there, moving in long, gliding steps. He regained the shadow and kept going. The first order of business was to stop the rock from turning. Otherwise, they couldn't live on it. Rip knew they had only one means of stopping the spin. That was to use the tubes of rocket fuel left over from correcting the course. They had three tubes left, but he didn't know if that was enough to do the job. Moving rapidly, he and Santos caught up with Koa and the Planeteers. The Connie prisoners were pretty well bunched up, gliding along like a herd of fantastic sheep. Their shepherds were Peterson, Nunez, and Doust. The three Planeteers had a pistol in each hand. The spares were probably those taken from the prisoners. The Planeteers were loaded down with equipment. A few Connie prisoners carried equipment, too. Trudeau had the rocket launcher and the remaining rockets. Kemp had his torch and two tanks of oxygen. Bradshaw had tied his safety line to the squat containers of chemical fuel for the torch and was towing them behind him like strange balloons. The only trouble with that system, Rip thought, was that Bradshaw could stop, but the containers had a tendency to keep going. Unless the English planeteer was skillful, his burdens would drag him right off his feet. Domenico had a tube of rocket fuel under each arm. The Italian was small and the tubes were bulky. Each was about ten feet long and two feet in diameter. With any gravity or air resistance at all, the Italian couldn't even have carried one. Rip smiled as Domenico glided along. He looked as though the tubes were floating him over the asteroid instead of the other way around. Santos took the radiation detection instruments and the case of astrogation equipment from Koa. Rip greeted his men briefly, then took his computing board and began figuring. 
He knew the men were glad he and Santos had made it, but they kept their greetings short. A spinning asteroid was no place for long and sentimental speeches. He remembered the dimensions of the asteroid and its mass. He computed its inertia, then figured out what it would take to overcome the inertia of the spin. Mathematics that would have been simple under normal conditions were difficult because he was doing them on the run, trying to watch his step at the same time. He had to hold the board under his arm and run alongside Santos while the new sergeant held the case open, select the book he wanted, open it up, and try to read the tables by his belt light, and then transfer the data to the board. His ventilator had quieted down once he got into the darkness, but now it started whining slightly again because he was sweating profusely. Finally, he figured out the thrust needed to stop the spin. Now all he had to do was compute how much fuel it would take. He had figures on the amount of thrust given by the kind of rocket fuel in the tubes. He also knew how much fuel each tube contained, but the figures were not in his head. They were on reference sheets. He collected the data on the fly, slowing down now and then to read something until a yell from Santos or Koa warned that the sun line was creeping close. When he had all the data noted on the board, he started his mathematics. He was right in the middle of a laborious equation when he stumbled over a thorium crystal. He went headlong, shooting like a rocket three feet above the ground. His board flew away at a tangent. His stylus sped out of his glove like a miniature projectile, and the slide rule clanged against his bubble. It happened so fast that neither Koa nor Santos had time to grab him. The action had given him extra speed, and he saw to his horror that he was going to crash into Trudeau. He yelled, Frenchy, watch out! Then he put both his hands before him to protect his helmet. His hands caught the French planeteer between the shoulders with a bone-jarring thud. Chapter 17 The Archer and the Eagle Trudeau held tight to the launcher, but the rocket racks opened and spilled attack rockets into space. They flew in a dozen different directions. Trudeau gave vent to his feelings in colorful French. Koa and Santos laughed so hard they had trouble collecting the scattered equipment. Rip, slowed by his crash with Trudeau, got his feet under him again. The asteroid had turned into the sun before they collected everything but Rip's stylus and five attack rockets. The space pencil was the only thing that could write on the computing board. It had to be found. Next time around, Rip called to the others and led the way full speed ahead until they regained the safety of shadow. Rip suspected the stylus was somewhere above the rock and probably wouldn't return to the surface for some minutes. While he was wondering what to do, there was a chorus of yells. A rocket sped between the planeteers and shot off into space. All rockets are after us! Trudeau gasped. There hadn't been time to collect them all after Rip's unwilling attack on the Frenchman scattered them. Now the sun was setting them off. Another flashed past, fortunately over their heads. The sun's heat was causing them to fire unevenly. Rip hoped they would all go off soon and get it over with. Three more to go, Cole called. Watch out. Only two went, and they were far enough away to offer no danger. Santos had been fishing around in the instrument case. He triumphantly produced another stylus. It was under the sextum, he explained. I thought there was another one around there somewhere. If we get through this, I'll propose ten more stripes for you, Rip vowed. We'll make you the highest-ranking sergeant that ever made a private's life miserable. Working slowly, but more safely, 
Rip figured that slightly more than two and a half twos would do the trick. Now to fire them. That meant finding a thorium crystal properly placed and big enough. There were plenty of crystals, so that was no problem. The next step was for Kemp to cut holes with his torch so that the thrust of the rocket fuel would be counter to the direction to which the asteroid was spinning. Rip explained to all hands what had to be done. The burden would fall on Kemp, who would need a helper. Rip took that job himself. He took one oxygen tank from Kemp. Koa took the other, leaving the torch man with only his torch. Then Rip took a container of chemical fuel from Bradshaw. Working while running, he lashed the two containers together with his safety line. Then he improvised a rope sling so they could hang on his back. He wanted his hands free. Kemp, meanwhile, assembled his torch and put the proper cutting nozzle in place. When he was ready, he moved to Rip's side and connected the hoses of the torch to the tanks the lieutenant carried. Kemp had the torch mechanism strapped to his own back. It was essentially a high-pressure pump that drew oxygen and fuel from the tanks and forced them through the nozzle under terrific pressure. When he had finished, he pressed the trigger that started the cutting torch going. The fuel ignited about a half an inch in front of the nozzle. The nozzle had two holes in it, one for oxygen and the other for fuel. The holes were placed and angled to keep the flame always a half inch away. Otherwise, the nozzle itself would melt. How do we work this? Kemp asked. We'll get ahead of the others, Rip explained. Keep up speed until we're running at the forward sunline. Then, when the crystal we want comes around into shadow, we can stop running and work until it spins into the sunshine again. Got it, Kemp agreed. Rip estimated the axis on which the asteroid was spinning and selected a crystal in the right place. He had to be careful, otherwise their counterblast might do nothing more than start the great planet wobbling. He and Kemp ran ahead of the others. The planeteers and their prisoners were running at a speed that kept them right in the middle of the dark area. It was like running on a treadmill. The planeteers were making good speed, but they were actually staying in the same place relative to the sun's position, keeping the turning asteroid between them and the sun. Rip and Kemp ran forward until they were right at the sunline. Then they slowed down, holding position and waiting for the crystal they had chosen to reach them. As it came across the sunline into the darkness, they stopped running and rode the crystal through the shadow until it reached the sun again. Then the two planeteers ran back across the dark zone to meet the crystal as it came around again. There was only a few minutes working time each revolution. Kemp worked fast, and the first hole deepened. Rip helped as best he could by pushing away the chunks of thorium that Kemp cut free, but it was really a one-man job. As Kemp neared the bottom of the first hole, Rip reviewed his plan and realized he had overlooked something. These weren't nuclear bombs. They were simple tubes of chemical fuel. The tubes wouldn't destroy the hole Kemp was cutting. He reached a quick decision and called for Koa to join them. Koa appeared as Kemp pulled his torch from the hole and started running again to avoid the sun. Rip and Koa ran right along with him, crossing the dark zone to meet the crystal as it came around again. There's no reason to drill three holes, Rip explained as they ran. We'll use one hole for all three charges. They don't have to be fired at once. How do we fire them? Koa asked. Electrically. Who has the exploders and the hand dynamo? Dallas does the exploders. One of the Connies is carrying the dynamo. Speaking of the Connies... Rip hadn't seen the Consop's cruiser recently. He looked up, searching for its exhaust, and finally found it, a faint line some distance away. 
The Connie commander was stalemated for the time being. He couldn't land his cruiser on a spinning asteroid, and he had no more boats. Rip thought he probably was just waiting around for any opportunity that might present itself. The Federation cruisers should be arriving soon. He studied his chronometer. No, the nearest one, the Sagittarius out of Mercury, wasn't due for another ten minutes or so. He turned up his helmet communicator and ordered all hands to watch for the exhaust of a nuclear-drive cruiser, then turned it down again and gave co-instructions. Have Trudeau turn his load over to Akani and collect the exploders in the dynamo. We'll need wire, too. Who has that? Another Akani. Get a reel. Cut off a few hundred feet and connect the dynamo to one end and an exploder to the other. The crystal came around again, and Kemp got to work. Rip stood by again, reviewing all the steps. They couldn't afford to make a mistake. He had no margin for error. Kemp finished the hole a few seconds before the crystal turned into the sunlight again. Rip told him to keep the torch going. There might be some last-minute cutting to do. Then the lieutenant hurried off at an angle to where Domenico was plodding along with the fuel tubes. Koa had turned the tube he was carrying over to Akani. Rip got it and told Domenico to follow him. Then he angled back across the asteroid to where Kemp was holding position. The asteroid turned twice before Koa arrived. He had a coil of wire slung over his arm, and he carried the dynamo in one hand and an exploder in the other, the two connected by the wire. Rip took the exploder. Uncoil the wire, he directed. Go to its full length at right angles to the hole. We have to time this exactly. When the crystal comes around again, I'll shove the tube into the hole, then scurry for cover. When I'm clear, I'll yell, and you pump the dynamo. Domenico and Kemp, stay with Koa. Make sure no one is in the way of the blast. Koa unreeled the wire, moving away from Rip. The lieutenant pushed the exploder into one end of the fuel tube and crimped it tightly with his gloved hand. Koa and the others were as far away as they could get now, the wire stretching between them and Rip. Kemp had made sure no one was running near the line of the blast. Rip watched for the crystal. It would be coming around any second now. He held the tube with the exploder, projecting behind him, ready for the hole to appear. Koa's voice echoed in his helmet. All set, Lieutenant. So am I, Rip answered. Stand by. The crystal appeared across the sun line and moved toward him. He met it, slowed his speed, put the end of the tube into the hole and shoved. Kemp had allowed enough clearance. The tube slid into place. Rip turned and angled off as fast as he could glide. When he was far enough away from the blast line, he called, Fire! Koa squeezed the dynamo handle. The machine whined and current shot through the wire. A column of orange fire spurted from the crystal. Rip watched the stars instead of the exhaust. He kept running as it burned soundlessly. In air, the noise would have deafened him. In airless space, there was nothing to carry the sound. The apparent motion of the stars was definitely slowing. The spinning wouldn't cease entirely, but it was slowed down enough to give them more time to work. The tube reached Brenschluss, and Rip called orders. Same process. Get ready to repeat. Domenico, bring one of your tubes. While Koa was connecting another exploder to the wire, Rip took a tube from Domenico. Take your space knife and saw through the tube you have left. We'll need about three-fifths of it. Keep both pieces. Domenico pulled his knife, pressed the release, and the gas capsule shot the blade out. He got to work. Koa called that he was ready. 
Rip took the wired exploder from him and thrust it into the tube Domenico had given him. As the crystal came around again, the process was repeated. The hull was undamaged. There was more time to get clear because of the asteroid's slower speed now. The second tube slowed the rock even more, so that they had to wait long minutes while the crystal came around again. Rip did some estimating. He wanted to be sure the next charge would do nothing more than slow the asteroid to a stop. If the charge was too heavy, it would reverse the spin. He didn't want to make a career of running around the asteroid. He was tired, and he knew his men were getting tired, too. He could see it in their strides. They were less sure of foot. He decided it would be best to use a little less fuel, rather than more. If the asteroid failed to stop its spin completely, they could always set off a small charge or two. Hold it, he ordered. We'll use the small end of Domenico's tube to save the big one. The fuel was a solid mass, so cutting the tube in two sections caused no difficulty. Rip pushed the exploder into the small section, seated it in the hole, and hurried to cover. As he watched the fuel burn, he wondered why the last nuclear charge had started the spin. He must have made a mistake somewhere. The earlier blasts had been so set so that they wouldn't cause a spin. He made a mental note to look at the place where the charge had exploded when things were more quiet. The rocket fuel slowed the asteroid down to a point where it was barely turning, and Rip was glad he had been cautious. The heavier charge would have reversed it a little. He directed the placing of a very small charge and was moving away from it so Koa could set it off when Santos suddenly yelled, Sir, the Connie is coming! Rip called, Fire that charge, Koa, then looked up. The Consop's cruiser was moving slowly toward them. The canny Connie had been waiting for something to happen on the asteroid, Rip guessed. When the spinning slowed and then stopped, the Connie probably had decided that now was time for a final try. Where's the communicator? Rip asked Koa. One of the Connies has it. Get it. I'll notify TerraBase of what happened. Koa found the Connie with a communicator, tested it to be sure the prisoner hadn't sabotaged it, and brought it to Rip. This is Foster to TerraBase. Over. Come in, Foster. Rip explained briefly what had happened and asked, How's our orbit? I haven't had time to take sightings. You're free of the sun, TerraBase answered. Your orbit will have to be corrected sometime within the next few hours. The last blast pushed you off course. That's a small matter, Rip stated. Unless we can think of something else fast, this will be a Connie asteroid by then. The Consop's cruiser is moving in on us. He's careful, because he isn't sure of the situation. But even at his present speed, he'll be here in ten minutes. Stand by. Tirabase was silent for a few moments. Then the voice replied, I think we have an answer for you, Foster. Terrabase off. Go ahead, Fife. A Scottish burr, thick enough to saw boards, came out of the communicator. Foster, this is McFife, commander of the Aquila. You can't see me on account of I'm on your sunny side, but lad, I'm closer to you than the Connie. We did it this way to keep the asteroid between us and him. Also, lad, if you'll take a look up at Gemini... You'll see something you like. Look at Alhera in the twin's feet. Then, lad, if you'll be patient the while, you'll have a grandstand seat for a real big show. Rip tilted his bubble back and stared upward at the constellation of the twins. He said softly, By Gemini! For there, a half a degree south of the star Alhena, was the clean line 
of a nuclear cruiser's exhaust. The Sagittarius out of Mercury had arrived. He cut the communicator off for a moment and spoke exultantly to his men. Stand easy, you hairy planeteers. Forget the Connie. He doesn't know it, but he's caught. He's caught between the archer and the eagle.